anybody that's in this industry, especially somebody that was in my former position, you sit around all the time and you complain about what's wrong with track and field. I'm one of the biggest talkers when it comes to that. I always complain about what's wrong. And I feel like I have a, a chance to potentially work towards one piece of the solution, which is an event series in the US after USA's, not like athletes can make money, but we're doing things differently and it's, you know, it's more entertainment and, you know, we're going to do our best. Yeah, it's exciting. It's very exciting. That's Jesse Williams. And this is episode 82 of the Morning Shakeout podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. I'm excited to share a conversation that I recorded in late September with Jesse Williams, who is the head of sports marketing at Brooks for 13 years, where he oversaw the marketing and business side of such initiatives as the Hanson's Brooks Distance Project, the Brooks Beasts, the Brooks PR Invitational, and other athlete programs. Jesse left Brooks in 2017. He took a year off from work to figure out his next move. And at the end of last year, he launched Sound Running, which is a company that offers training programs, coaching, and events for runners of all ability levels. He's particularly excited about next summer's Sound Running Tour, a series of track meets in Southern California that's designed to create competitive domestic racing opportunities for athletes who are seeking Olympic tune-ups and personal bests, all while helping push the sport forward, which is something that it desperately, desperately needs right now. Jesse has had an interesting career trajectory from studying exercise physiology and English as an undergrad to becoming a kindergarten teacher as a 22-year-old before going back to grad school for a degree in biomechanics. He then worked his way up the chain at Brooks to become the head of sports marketing, and we got into all of that and a lot more over the course of this 90-minute conversation. There was also quite a bit of discussion about the marketing side of the sport, what excites him and what worries him about it right now, how brands can better use their athletes, and a lot more. I think you'll find this one equal parts interesting and insightful, so let's get right to it with Jesse Williams. Cool. Well, let's, um, let's roll right into yeah. it. Jesse Williams, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're in Santa Monica. This is home for you. It is. Only been home for you for a couple of years now. What brought you down here? Uh, you know, I, I would like to say there was a big plan in place, but um, I honestly, I lived in Seattle for 13 years and I had been coming down here for work and I always loved it. It was sunny year round and yeah, it was very tempting. And when the time came, this, I wanted to come here either or San Diego and I picked here. You needed a 180 from kind of the rain and dreariness of Seattle. Yeah. I mean, Seattle is one of the greatest places on the planet, but the weather does wear, wear on, on you. you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you spent 13 years in Seattle working for Brook Sports. You left there as director of sports marketing. How hard of a decision was that for you? Oh, it was super hard because I honestly, and I'll say this, you know, repeatedly, I worked with all my best friends. And I worked for a company I was very passionate about and I watched Brooks grow, you know, when I got there, I think we were, you know, 70, 80 million. And I think when I left, we were 550, 550 million. And it was fun because we went from like fourth or fifth in running specialty to number one. And, 
you know, and you feel like part of a family and it's this family achieving these goals together. It was really amazing. Yeah. It was, it was a very hard decision because it was kind of my dream job, but, um, also my dream was to also work on my own. And so eventually you have to take that leap. Were you at Brooks the entire 13 years that you were in Seattle? I was. Yeah. Um, I actually started, uh, as a field rep, a field marketing rep, we called them, um, at the time we called them brand warriors. Now they're called gurus. And I was out in Washington DC area for about four or five months. And then Brooks signed the Hansons and they all of a sudden realized they needed somebody to do sports marketing. So they had hired Dave Larson on as head of marketing and he had been at uh, working in the tennis association. He'd been at Nike for years and Nike tennis and they brought him on. And so he actually had a pretty big sports marketing mind. Um, and so when he got there, he was like, well, we have this team. We need somebody in sports marketing. And I was just super lucky to be right place, right time and moved out there. And I was there for 13 years. Was that your first job out of college? Um, no, actually before I went to grad school, it was my first job out of grad school. Okay. But before grad school, I taught for a year. I taught kindergarten for a year. So I didn't know that. very, very different. Yeah. What'd you major in? Um, well, so undergrad, I was exercise physiology okay. and, and English. Really random. Yeah. It's like and you ended one up as a kindergarten teacher. Yeah. Um, That's kind of wild. Yeah. It was random. I, I moved to Seattle originally and I was going to go to grad school there and ended up getting a job teaching instead, was there for a year and then decided to go back to grad school. And yeah, so it was one of those kind of very real jobs. You're a teacher and all of a sudden you're like, this is real life. I'm 22. I'm teaching kindergarten and it was amazing. But, um, grad school definitely was, uh, you know, in the horizon always. What'd you study in grad school? Biomechanics. Yeah. Which I'd can't say that I use super often. <laughs> so I'm just trying to connect <laughs> yeah. the dots here. So then you go into working for Brooks as a field marketing rep. And from there, as you just described, end up back at HQ. Well, at HQ, I should say, working in sports marketing. Was it just a matter of, I don't know, like being in the, having your foot in the door at the company, you obviously had a competitive running background, which we'll get into here in a little bit. I'd, I'd love to understand how that gap got bridged. Yeah, um, it is interesting because it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think when I was in grad school, I was doing biomechanics because exercise physiology kind of did taper right into biomechanics right. pretty well. But um, I always thought I'm going to do research or I'm going to be a coach or you know whatever. And then I got this kind of insight into this whole world of running outside of coaching, which was this whole industry of footwear and apparel. And I was lucky enough to get a job at Brooks. And then when I did, I always say that like, I never stopped being in school because when I got a job at Brooks, I, I didn't know how the uh, organization worked. I didn't know the structure of like a business, you know, when it came to, uh, here's, you know, the, the marketing department, here's the sales department, here's the ops, you know, here's, and so I, I felt like I was always learning. And because we were so small, I think the marketing team was five people when I started. And now the marketing team is probably like 40 or 50 mm -hmm. and you, but you learn as you go, like all these positions, Oh, this is this. And this is this department sports marketing. I mean, if you had, at, if you had told me what sports marketing was in college, I, I, you know, I probably threw your hands up and yeah. Like, like, I uh, no yeah. So it wasn't, but then all of a sudden I was in this job and I was like, man, my job is to work with athletes and to, um, 
you know, come up with ideas of what we're going to do with the trials or, you know, whatever. And if, you know, yeah, it was just very interesting. I can't, yeah, can't say it, it's planned. So this was 2000, what, six or so? So seven? when I moved to Seattle was 2004. Okay. Yeah. 2004 is when I moved to Seattle. And uh, that's when I officially took on a sports marketing role. At Brooks, okay. Mm -hmm. And you were responsible for working just with Hanson's Brooks or with all of the athletes that Brooks was sponsoring? Well, at the time, that's all we had. So it was okay. Hanson's Brooks, and we had this program called the Ambassador Program, which was just people, local heroes, we called them, you know, local road racing heroes. Um, you didn't have any one-off elites. You not just at had the time. individual pro contracts. Yeah, and that was so... And I was only actually half a job, so I was doing events across the U.S. going to marathons, working the expos, doing all that. And then half of it was sports marketing because sports marketing wasn't even a full-time job yet. Um, but we knew we needed somebody to manage the Hanson's program um, because even in 2004, I mean, you can remember the 2004 trials down in Birmingham mm -hmm. where the Hanson's kind of was a coming out party, you know, for them with Brian Sell leading pretty much the whole race and then falling back a little bit, but then Trent Briney and Clint Vera in fourth and fifth. How were you thinking about your role at that time, having no real formal training in sports marketing or marketing in general? Be like, okay, I'm here. I'm working with the athletes. My job is to manage them and you know create a platform for them to really help grow this brand and gain exposure. Yeah, I you know it was such a learning experience because when I got there, I just thought I have to make sure these guys are taken care of. And that's it. That's what I thought my job was. And then I realized, you know, my job is to be on the pulse of what's going on in the sport and to see around the corner and to, you know, adapt with how are we going to get better athletes? How are we going to be a force in the sport? How are, are people going to look at Brooks always as, I mean, when I started at Brooks, I would say we were the brand where like your dad wore Brooks, but you didn't know anybody that was like fast that wore Brooks. And you probably didn't wear Brooks yourself, you know, it was that brand. And so I, I looked at my job as getting the fast people in Brooks and, um, and whether that was like through sponsoring some high school team or some college or some race or, or sponsoring the next athlete that everybody was looking at, but it was definitely a learning of like, that's how it worked. You know, it wasn't right away. I just realized that it was at first I was just hanging out with the Hansons, making sure they were, you know, taken care of. What were some of those biggest first initial learnings for you? Uh, you know, I would say, um, and even to the very end, the biggest learning was every time we thought we were doing really well, you just, you go to like a high school meet in another state and you're like, wow, there's, there's still no kids wearing Brooks bikes. So there's still no we kids got work wearing, to do. and we got work to do. And even when we were number one in specialty and everybody was, you know, high-fiving each other in the office. I would go to an, we sponsored Mount Sac for a long time and I would go to Mount Sac and I would just look around like, we got people in trainers, but they're still not wearing our spikes. And even the people in trainers, do they have an opinion of Brooks or are they just wearing Brooks? Mm -hmm. And I always wanted people to have an opinion of Brooks. I wanted people to think when they thought of Brooks, they thought of, well, these are the people that get running. And, you know, that was the biggest learning day one all the way to the very end is we, st we got work to do. To go off on a little tangent, that's really interesting because I know from having worked in run specialty myself, spikes are a very small part of a company's business from a revenue standpoint. 
it's not bringing in a lot of money because it's a small percentage of very competitive people who are wearing them, mostly high school, college, and then, you know, post-collegiately some people as well. But it says something, right? It says something about the brand when they choose to grab a Nike spike or grab a Brooks spike or grab a Saucony spike and put it on their feet. And it's interesting to hear you describe that, that, you know, you'd sponsor these meets and it's like, okay, we've got our logo plastered all over the place. This is great. It's good exposure. But then you look at what people are wearing and you're like, oh. Yeah. I mean, spikes in, don't, don't get me wrong, internally. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. You'd have battles all the time with people because spikes cost a lot of money. They don't make any money. Spikes is basically a marketing line item. Now it's hard to look at it that way. Some companies do, some companies don't. Um, I think Brooks was more successful once they realized that's what it was. Mm-hmm. When they thought they were going to make money on spikes, it was very hard pill to swallow. And, but it is, it's the tip of the spear. It's like when a kid decides to wear your spikes, I mean, spikes is kind of where that technology, all that technology goes where the lightest and the fastest and the most elite and you're mm-hmm. looking for performance. And so you pick that spike because it not only makes you feel fast, but you think it's the fastest. And I, I always equated that to, to having, um, to really making it, you know, Brooks made it because we made this really fast kid wore our spikes or, you know, they chose and, um, it maybe that's, you know, the wrong way to look, but I definitely judged us based on that, you know, and what we were doing. Moving forward from your early days at Brooks, how did your role continue to evolve in sports marketing? Brooks still sponsors the Hanson's Brooks team. Uh, they sponsor a bunch of athletes. They're sponsoring more events. I'd love to go through those early years and how it went from beyond just managing the Hanson's Brooks team to expanding your role as someone in the marketing department. Yeah, um, it was. It was a. It was a process. So you know, at first it was. It was half of a job and it was, I was events and also sports marketing. But then after a while it became something where, okay, now this is a full-time job and we need to do more with this. So, okay, what are we going to do at the Olympic trials, you know, marathon? How are we going to make you know a spark there where, you know, maybe we, ha- maybe we have somebody that can make the team, but how are we going to make a spark? How are we going to, you know, put our name out in front of everybody? And then it became a matter of every year. I had, you would have some crazy idea, you know, we need, I want to do this high school meet. What if we did this high school all-star meet? And I, I look back, you know, as far back as maybe like 2007, I was pitching this kind of all-star high school meet. And, um, we thought that'd be really cool. You know, like there's Foot Locker, right? I grew up with Foot Locker and now there's Nike team nationals, but I thought in track, there's kind of this hodgepodge of a bunch of different, there's Arcadia, there's New Balance Nationals, but I just thought, there's, you can do a track meet and you can do it well. And I, I kept thinking indoors because University of Washington has this unbelievable indoor track. And I was like, we have the fastest track in the U.S. here in our hometown. Let's bring kids out. Let's break records. Let's do, you know. And so originally it started as that. But so every time it was like, okay, we had that idea for an indoor meet. And then it was, I remember recruiting um, for our first like round of track athletes. And I realized I was getting the question all the time, well, uh, who's your coach? What's your team? I was like, well, we have Keith and Kevin Hansen. You know, they've coached all these people. They've done amazing things. And they're like, well, that's a marathon group. And I was like, well, it's not. But you couldn't get that out of people's brains. Right. So you couldn't get a 1,500 guy to sign or a girl to sign because they're like, who's your coach? So then it was, well, how do we fix that? And you start the Brooks Beast. Brooks Beast is born. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of things 
happened via like you see and you go, okay, yeah, there's teams here. And also, also we had a really great model of how that worked because Keith and Kevin Hansen, I'll argue, were at the very front of that group training and paradigm. And they showed, and I also a million people had solicited for groups, you know, mm-hmm. between in that 10 years, a million people, I'm going to start a training group. I'm going to start. And people don't understand how hard that is. It's not only has to be really funded, but you have to have very special people spearheading it. Location's important. And location's very important. And so um, I had a really great model of Keith and Kevin having done it, and I saw how theirs worked. And so, yeah, every every single year it was, let's pitch something new. Okay, now let's pitch this new, and let's pitch this new. And I had a great team, too. I got to hire great people, and they were go you know go-getters, and it was fun. It's interesting to hear you describe that, and for me to think back and start connecting the dots. I was at the Olympic Trials Marathon 2007. Brian Sell makes a team, big moment for Hansen's, big moment for Brooks. But what I remember about that event is all of the big Brian Sell heads that were around <laughs> Central Park. You yeah. could not turn a corner during that race and not see a Brian Sell head. And, and it was, I mean, that was really amazing and very like simple inexpensive thing but it was like the brooks hansen team at that race like to me i was like wow there's something going on here um because you had so many people who were such a fan of the group and looked at that group as a bit of underdogs and wanted someone from the team from that group to make the team because they'd come so close you know the trials prior and then thinking ahead to you know i think it was 2012 in eugene with the helicopter uh, or the, <laughs> the plane, plane flying over you know flying over um hayward field and some folks in beaverton not taking too kindly to that and you know the pr invitational and just like the splash that that's made and it's 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 interesting to hear like what the genesis of all of those things were yeah i mean we had a great team and uh, sometimes we just thought we had a really creative team and we had a really creative boss and he would push us to just, okay, so everybody's showing up to the Boston Marathon Expo and we're all going to have a booth. And we're all going to sell shoes. And we're all going to do some parody shirt of the course or whatever, right? But why are people coming to our booth? And so we would have a booth and we did like a running revivalist tent and we had like the Sklar brothers basically doing this stand-up show. I remember like that. in our and and there was a line around our booth. Everybody else was just selling shoes. And so we took cues from that and said, okay, we're going to the Olympic trials. What can we do? And I laughed because the plane thing's like this infamous thing, but like it honestly was us sitting around a table and we just thought, well, we can't do anything like inside the stadium. And we, I wish our athletes got more from us. And one of the guys, Steve DeCoker, who's now the head of the sports marketing there is he, he's like, well, we can fly a plane over, just like run happy banner or whatever. And, and we were kind of joking about it. And our boss was, he loves ideas like that. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And sure enough, we did it. And we did not ever think it would be a big deal. Never. We never, never, we thought this is for our athletes. We're going to do this. It's kind of a, you know, good luck. We're here cheering you on. Never thought it was like an antagonistic, not even a guerrilla marketing thing. Maybe mm-hmm. we were naive to think that, but we really didn't. So when we got in trouble for it, it was just, you know, naive, you know, but yeah, it was very fun. We had a great creative staff. What was the response when you got in trouble for it? You know, I got an email. It was we did it the last two days of the trial. So on day nine, we did it. And I got an email the morning of day 10 from, 
I believe it was USOC, and they just said, hey, you violated blah, blah, blah rule, and you cannot fly this, you're, you know, whatever. And I remember our, we had this big track house right across the street from Hayward. And I visited I remember, it. I remember it. Yeah, we did group runs every morning. It was great. But I, I was, like, our CEO was at the house, and I walked into the living room, and I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And he looked at it. And we also had a guy, Tracy Sunlin was there. I know Tracy. I worked yeah. with him very closely at Competitor Group. Yeah. So Tracy was at Competitor and Tracy's one of these guys. I mean, he knows everybody. He knows everything about everything, you know, and he goes, well, they don't, they didn't secure the airspace. There's, it's not a no fly zone. So now you can secure the airspace, but they didn't. He goes, my buddy's FBI. And he said they did, you know, like he, he knew everybody it was <laughs> yeah. crazy. And I just happened to, he's sitting in our living room talking with our CEO and we're all talking about this. And Jim's like, well, to be safe, should we just call off today? You know, he's like, let's not antagonize anybody. We don't want to take away from the from the event. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll call Steve. Steve's back home because he just had a second little, uh, he had a daughter. And so he wasn't allowed, he couldn't stay at the trial for 10 days. And um, so he was back home for session two. And I called him, I was like, hey man, can we call this guy and not, we basically, this was like a, like a farmer pulling this banner in his plane. You know what I mean? Like, so he tried to call the guy, but the guy was already gone for the day. And he goes like, sorry, man. So I called, I, I go back into the living room. I was like, Jim, I guess the guy's already like going up. It's going like, to happen like Jim or not. just goes, oh, well, well, let's go to the track. And we were honestly at the track for 15 minutes, which this is the infamous uh, 2012 trials where the Mark Block thing, all that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Where everybody's like, oh, we didn't know he was hanging out in the VIP section. Well, guess what? I was at the meet for 15 minutes and USOC people came to my seat and found me. So you can find whoever you want if you want to, let's be honest. But they came to my seat, found me, said, we're going to kick out your whole area. You flew this banner. They were yelling at me, like screaming at me, which was kind of comical because thinking of what I did was like, it wasn't even me. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't, but they were yelling at us and they're like, well, we're going to, we're going to, you guys can either leave or we're going to kick you out. And Jim, our CEO, he's, he's like, kick us out. So they went and got security and they kicked us out. And it was really interesting because we got kicked out of the trials and they kept citing. They're like, well, look at the back of your, we're like, well, what did you do? I said, well, look at the back of your ticket. And the back of your ticket, in any sporting event or concert or anything you go to, it basically says they can throw you out for anything they want to. So there's no fighting it. And we got thrown out. And Just because they wanted to, they were, they were pissed. Yeah, they were pissed. And it ended up... I mean, that was I, the only thing they could do. Yeah. I mean, that whole city, I mean, there is no beating the history of Eugene and Nike and the roots. I mean, I'm rereading the swoosh book or whatever right now. And there's no beating that. If you're a runner, I mean, it's, it's Hayward, it's pre, it's Nike, it's Phil Knight. It's the they own it coolest all. thing ever. You can't beat that. So I laugh that like a plane got under people's skin so much, but um, and it, we weren't actually breaking any rules, which I'll, I'll still, you know, stand by, but it is, it is what it is funny. And, you know, it actually went down the road to like, when we were talking to Nick Simmons about signing Nick, uh, a couple of years later, that was one of the first things he said was, he's like, did you guys, you guys were the ones that flew that plane? He's like, I loved that. Let's talk. <laughs> so that's, that's an amazing story. Yeah. I did other things, you know? Do you think your lack of a background or lack of training in sports marketing is what allowed you to come up with some of these off the wall type of ideas or actually just pull the trigger and execute them? 
I think, um, yeah, sometimes I think ignorance is bliss. There was no game plan. There was no, you know, spreadsheet of we have to execute this and do this and do this. It was what would be cool. You know, even when we did the PR meet, I remember sitting down with Steve and staff and we, we would just say, if you were 18 and you were on a track meet, what would be cool? And everything we tried to do for that meet was what would be cool, you know? And I think that came from Dave Larson, who was our VP, because Dave just always was an outside the box thinker. He always wanted to do, he, we used to call it, um, when they zig, we zag, you know? And he never wanted to show up and be a, you know, oh, they're doing this and we're doing this. He always wanted to be, wow, what is Brooks doing? That is cr- like crazy. He hated to just be uh, also, you know, brand. And I think it came from him. Honestly, we were, my in- introduction to marketing was him as my boss and we were always doing crazy stuff. And I feel like that just filtered down into our brains when it came to what are we going to do next, you know, for sports marketing? What are we going to do with this event? What are we going to do with our athletes, you know? And it really came from him. So you were just in this continual process of on-the-job training the entire time that you were at the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it was never a dull moment, you know, and that was Brooks in general. We did that. Sports marketing did that, but Brooks did that in general. Our sales team did that. Our, you know, our customer service team did that. That's why we were so successful. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about the origins of your own running career because you've ran, you've run competitively, I should say, for a good chunk of your life. What was your initial introduction to the sport? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, they do those presidential fitness tests. I remember those. Uh, you know, so I grew up in Illinois. We do those presidential fitness tests. And if you grew up in Illinois, you probably grow up playing other sports, not running. And, but we would do this test every year. And I ran the mile cause you do a mile and you have to do it under a certain time. And I just remember it was the one thing that I like always did really well. But the real reality was when I, the first time I ever did anything was I ran, there was a local 5K in my hometown and it went by my front door and I saw people running it my whole life. And finally, I was like the summer before freshman year and I signed up and ran it. And the high school cross country coach after the race came up and talked to me and asked me to come out for the team. And honestly, I was never going to play football. I actually thought about playing golf, um, even though I wasn't any good. But a coach coming and asking me to come out for the team, I just, that to means me, something. it was like I was being recruited. I felt really, you know, it just was like a proud moment. And as soon as I went to that first practice and got a taste, it was like really no looking back. I mean, I loved it from the start. What was it that hooked you initially? I, I loved the people. I was, I instantly had best friends. I was best friends with everybody in the team, lifelong friends with the guys who were freshmen with me at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happened in college. The same thing happened when I got to Brooks and ran with people. You know, you just, the camaraderie that comes through running. Um, I would say almost every one of my lifelong friends were connected through running. You know, it's just, that's our common thread. People go, oh, how'd you guys meet? And it's, it's always running. Yeah, that, Sounds very familiar to me as well. Not so much at the high school level because I didn't have much of a program, but certainly from college and beyond. If I think about all the guys that I had in my wedding, all but one of them I met through running. And the one I didn't meet through running is my brother. Um, So (laughs) it's like, yeah, it's pretty amazing in that way. And I think a lot of people listening to this 
can resonate with that. And it's, it's a pretty special thing, um, to be able to look back at those connections and, you know, think about how it got you to different places in life as well. Yeah. Sliding doors. I mean, running has definitely been the constant connector and, you know, the, the miles you share with friends, um, you know, different cities when you're on the road, you know, I mean, the, you know, um, runs after big moments, runs before big moments. I mean, just, yeah, it's, uh, it is pretty special. When did you first start to realize that you had some talent? I would say freshman year, well, no sophomore year. Cause freshman year, I was pretty normal freshman. I ran, you know, I was like, I think fourth guy on our team and we only had seven guys on our cross country team, but we were, you know, everybody was fairly motivated and I was like third or fourth guy on the team. But I came in sophomore year and I actually ran over the summer, which run is a relative word, but I didn't run that many miles, but I, I ran more than most people. And I was instantly our number one guy sophomore year. And then I realized, Oh, I'm sophomore and like the best guy in our school. And I don't care who you are. That's a pretty motivating thing um, to be the best at something. Mm -hmm. And I still thought I was a basketball player. I thought I was good at basketball, whatever. You and me both. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> you realize you're like, well, I'm kind of done growing in this sport. You know, I'm the best at this, but basketball, I'm like doing everything I can to make the team. And so I think that's when I realized, you know, um, it's hard to not get excited about something you're good at. Did you know at that point that it was something you wanted to continue doing after high school, even if you couldn't do it in college, did you see it as a path to college? I'd love to understand what your mindset was. It's at funny because I, I joke about that because when I was in high school, I remember I ran an 8k road race and it was like a turkey trot and my mm -hmm. buddy's dad was going and we just went with him. And I remember I did pretty well and it's the first time I ever been thought like, oh, that's what they run in college, you know. I'm never going to run in college. Never even thought about it. And it's just something you did while you were in high school. Just something I did, and and then when I realized it could be a gateway to college, then it became more of a reality. And then when I was in college, oh, I'll never do this after college. And then, but you have goals kind of left, you know, untouched, and mm -hmm. you kind of keep going. And then all of a sudden. I, you know, I definitely am a pattern person. The more I do something that I've kind of find what I like and I just do it and do it and do it. And, and running's become that where I don't know what to do if I don't get out the door and run an hour. And, um, and I had a life that was very conducive to that running with people at work, running in college, running in high school. And so every step along the way, I thought, Oh, I'll be done with this soon. And then here I am still running, still training, you know, still getting out there for an hour. You studied physiology as an undergrad. When you decided to take on that major, did it have anything to do with your interest in running or had you always been sort of a science person? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough. I had pretty good coaches and they always were really good at explaining how running affected your body and, and how it all came together. And um, I think it came from wanting to understand that even better. Um, going into what happens to your body during exercise and how does it change. And, and I thought forever, my goal was I wanted to coach. I wanted to coach in college. And to Did me, you first realize that in college? Yeah. I, okay. I, I saw what my college coach was doing. And I thought, wow, this, this looks like an amazing job. I want to do this. And I was trying to ladder up to that any way possible. And that was, 
I thought exercise physiology was a perfect background. And even when I went to grad school, I thought biomechanics was even more like I was doing everything just next level. Yeah. I just thought this is going to all, you know, work for this, you know, ultimate job, which is coaching collegiate track and field. Who was your college coach? So, um, my freshman year was Lane Anderson, who's at Iowa now. Well, now he's at Tennessee. And where Um, did you run undergrad? I ran Texas tech. Yeah. So, and it was a very lucky time because I was there with Lane Anderson, who's amazing motivator, great coach. And then Dave Smith came in, who's now at Oklahoma State, multiple national championships. And so I had two people who, I mean, how lucky is that? Like Texas Tech was not a huge program at the time. And if you think about the two coaches I was lucky to have, and Dave was there the majority. And I, I mean, I was lucky enough to have him as a coach while I was there. It's pretty amazing. Did you know your senior year of college that you wanted to continue racing competitively and see if you could take it to another level? Or at that point, were you thinking about what was next professionally? And once you figured that out, you'd figure out where running fit into the equation. Um, I was always focused professionally and running was always something I also did. So Mm -hmm. running never led the discussion or the decisions. Um, but I started really slow in college. I mean, my freshman year of college, I bet you I was running 20 miles, 30 miles a week. And so only my senior year, junior and senior year, once Dave Smith was there, we started running more, more miles and I started actually seeing real improvement. And so I felt after college, I had so much uh, potential. Yeah. I was, yeah. I just felt like I, my PRs are too weak and I'm just starting to figure this out. I'm starting to just train like I should. And so it was more that motivation than pursuing running like oh i'm gonna do all these things it was it was never good enough to be um oh i'm gonna do something real special i just it was more i this stuff undone you know when did trying to qualify for the olympic trials and the marathon come into the picture for you um so i i ran a marathon i ran oklahoma city memorial marathon it was my first one ever and i bonked real real hard but i still won which was weird because it was my first race and I made every mistake possible, but it was kind of a smaller race. So, and I came back the next year, didn't run that fast, but then I went to Chicago and out of nowhere, I ran, I think I ran 223, but I ran like 113, 110. And all of a sudden I thought, Wow, that was I was really close. And like, the standard was 222 at the at time. At the time I it was 222 and you know, it was one of those, it's age old runner thing where you're, you're like, oh, I didn't train that hard and I didn't race that well and it was hot today and like I can easily run 218 or 219, you know, but um, coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know, but yeah, so that that was the first time I thought it was possible and I spent the next probably three years, four years chasing that. Were you still training pretty hard when you were working full time at Brooks? Yeah, I had, you know... Um, several, you know, normal work weeks that also included, you know, 80 miles. I wasn't a huge mileage guy, but I, I was running pretty consistently 80, but to be fair, 80, 90 miles a week. I, I worked with people that ran and I was able to walk out the front door, run and come back and sit at my desk. And I was able to run with people. And so it was very conducive. It's not the, um, you hear about people getting up at five and doing their run or running during lunch or that's not how Brooks was. Brooks was, Hey, you know, I would go for an hour run with our VP of sales and we would talk about work 
but we would run an hour at a pretty good clip. Mm-hmm. Or I would run with uh, another our sports marketing guy, Steve DeCoker, and who's a very talented runner himself. And we would do a long run and talk about, oh, well, here's what we're going to do for the PR meet. Here's how we're going to change this. Here's what we're going to do. So it, it was actually a, like a running meeting. So it was a very unique environment that was conducive to staying on the running path. So you weren't being coached or anything at the time? No. I mean, I... Every once in a while, I needed a little guidance, so I asked Keith and Kevin for a training plan once, and I used their training plan. I asked Dave Smith for a training plan once, but just because I didn't like to just every week think, okay, what am I going to do this? I'm going to do this workout. You know, I wanted something to follow just to make me accountable, um, but for the most part, it was just me coaching myself, doing whatever came up that day. You had plenty going on with your full-time job. Did you ever do any coaching on the side or help any people out because that was what you had wanted to do before you ended up in this yeah. position. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually had an opportunity to take a college coaching job or a couple when I first got to Brooks after like two years, but I realized how much I liked Brooks. So I just kind of, I was like, well, this is better. I like this better anyway. But, um, I did, I, there was quite a few people during my time at Brooks that, Hey, I'm running my first half marathon. Could you write me a training plan? Or, a friend here and there training for something that I coached. So I, I felt like I was always writing a training plan for somebody, mm-hmm. um, whether it was somebody trying to do something, you know, get a Boston qualifier or whether it was somebody trying to run their first half marathon or mar- marathon. Um, I felt like I was that person in the office that uh, some of, a lot of the people came to just because, oh, I worked with the athletes and because they saw me running every day. Um and it was fun. That, that, yeah, I enjoyed that too. Aside from all of that, were you doing anything with your past physiology and biomechanics studies or had that all sort of fallen by the wayside by that point? Uh, you know, no, I, I wasn't. Um, there, there was, I actually worked at a company where I could have used my biomechanics degree because Brooks had a beautiful biomechanics lab mm-hmm. and they had biomechanists working in there and testing shoes and testing apparel and doing a bunch of different things. Um, so I actually probably worked at one of the few places I could have used that outside of a university setting. Um, but no, I mean, outside of, you know, recruitment, which I do think that my biomechanics background did come into play recruiting and, you know, just having maybe a more knowledgeable set of eyes when it came to watching pros. You could but, look at an athlete and understand what type of athlete they were. Yeah. Where the potential was, what they could potentially the way somebody turn into. moves yeah. is huge. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, the way somebody moves is really huge, and you can see it right away. And um, yeah, I mean that that's that's a big part of it. But yeah, I for the most part that degree or those degrees were just they just were what they you know they were what they were. It's like you showed that you know how to learn, <laughs> and that's about it. You know. <laughs> Hey, we're taking a real quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by UCAN. It's a brand whose products I use to fuel my own training and racing. UCAN powders and bars with Superstarch give you slow-release carbs and long-lasting energy without the big crash. I've used the Superstarch drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, and the new Hydrate product, which I've been taking on my longer training runs, is a clean, natural electrolyte replacement with no sugar, zero calories, and five added electrolytes to replace the nutrients that you lose when you sweat. Visit GenerationUCAN.com and use the code SHAKEOUT25 and you'll save 25% on your first order. Or you can use the code SHAKEOUT, there's no number at the end of that one, and you will save 15% on subsequent orders. 
My thanks to UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When did you start first start thinking about moving on from Brooks? He was in the back of my mind for a couple of years. Um, I just always thought, wow, I'm in Seattle. I've been here for 13 years. I never planned on living in Seattle. And now this is my home. I've lived here almost longer than anywhere else. And while I'm in this job and I travel all the time and I kind of know where I'm going to be every week of the year forever, you know, and, and I like that because I love like the continuity and, oh, now it's Chicago Marathon weekend. Oh, now it's Marine Corps Marathon. Now it's New York. Now we're going to sales meeting. Now it's, you know, New Year's and now it's, you know, whatever. So now it's track season and, you know, I loved that, but I also, I just thought, wow, that's, is that it? Is that what I'm going to do? And I always want to do something on my own. I definitely, I loved my job there, but I, I would say I'm not really built for the office atmosphere mm-hmm. of meetings and um, just even politics of getting things, you know, approved. Like, you know how it is. If you have a good idea, you think it's a good idea and you want to run with it. You don't want to have to march it through. Permission. You don't want to have to march it through this chain of command, which is how a business works. But um, that was something that was always in the back of my mind was, well, if I do something on my own, every all my sweat and my hard work is, it's for me and my, you know, my family and whatever, you know, it's not a bigger, you know, it's not a tiny piece of this giant company and nobody knows, you know, cause it, you know, you do take it personally I mean, you work real hard, especially when you're a small company and you, the bigger it gets, the more you feel less important. And, uh, it, you never really felt that way at Brooks, you know, you always felt important, but I also knew I just want to do something on my own, create something. It was a very hard decision. Cause like I said, I, I couldn't have had a better situation. Did anyone there try to change your mind? I had a bunch of friends that just kind of thought I was, I think they thought like a little lost. Yeah. I think they just thought, what's he doing? This is crazy. Like, is this just Jesse being like mad at something or is he having a tough moment or, and it, the reality is, is my favorite times at Brooks was when we were doing something new. So when we decided, Oh, we're going to start this high school meet. I've never been more invigorated than the months leading up to that and everything we were doing, like creating. And then we were starting the beasts and working with Danny and just everything that goes into that and recruiting people and building something. And, Oh, now it's an Olympic year. We're going to do all this. And I, I think that I needed that to a much bigger degree, which is like just creating something. I'm never like more energized. And I kind of thought Brooks was at least my job in sports marketing was kind of in a holding pattern. Okay. We have what we have now. We're just going to like hold on and like maybe refine it. Well, and as you just described a few minutes ago, year over year, it's a lot of the same things. It's track season, it's marathon season. And there's a probably an order of operations that you've got to follow when you're doing that. And and that's necessary. Right. But you know, it can also stymie some of that creativity sometimes when those opportunities come up to start something new, like you said, um, that is that is what energized you. I'd love to understand where does that entrepreneurial type spirit come from to start new things. You know, I I wouldn't say that I intuitively have it. I would say that um, I realized I enjoyed that. I realized I was never um, 
happier at work than when we were doing something new. You know, you're working crazy hours, but you don't care because you're really excited about what's next and what's mm. what you're working on. And I think doing that made me realize, okay, like I think if I had the right idea, I'm motivated enough to pull it off. Cause it's a it's it is a big move to be like, okay, I'm gonna leave this safety of this job and and health insurance and you know, whatever, you know, 401k and predictability, you know, very predictability and, and all my friends and whatever to do something. But I also saw, I was confident enough to, to know, okay, when I, when I get excited about something, I'm motivated enough to make it work. And so I just have to find out what that is. And did you have that something cooking before you left Brooks at the back of your mind or elsewhere? I would like to say I did, but I did not. I, I took a year off and my goal that year was I'm going to take a year off. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to apply for jobs. I'm not going to do anything. And you can ask my friends. Every one of my friends would come visit me or I would see them over vacation. Or Were you here in Santa Monica? I was in Santa Monica. Okay. So I moved down here and they would come visit and they were like, so how are you doing? You know, what are you, <laughs> so what are you doing? I'm like, oh, it's great. I'm just doing this. And, and they, it was amazing. And I, and I had really good friends tiptoeing me, tiptoeing around me because they didn't want to ask me. And the funny thing was, is nobody was less worried than me. Like I was, I was not worried at all. But everyone's worried for you. Everybody was super worried. My mom was worried. My grandparents were calling me like all my best friends, like two of my really good friends in Seattle, like because I'm really tight with their children. I've known them forever. And they even were like, you can be like our nanny for our kids. Like, cause I'm so tight with their children. And you taught kindergarten. No. Yeah, no, like they just, people were looking out for me because they thought I was lost. And, and maybe without knowing it, maybe I was, but I, I always knew I'll be fine. I'll be fine no matter what. And so, um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't have a plan. I just thought, give myself a year and something will something will bubble to the surface. As scary as it must have been to step away from that predictability, you also had the confidence to know that you needed that break. And I think a lot of people, myself included, are, I mean, scared to take the leap, number one, but also afraid to just be idle for a while. It's, it's scary because um, a lot of people say, oh, you go stir crazy, you know, you're just, you want to do something. Not me. I loved doing nothing. And I was a little scared at one point that I liked doing nothing so much that I might not get motivated again. And it was actually pretty worrisome because I would see, I'd be just, you know, Tuesday, I got nothing to do. I'm just out. I go for a run, go grab lunch, I'm at a coffee shop. And I'd see people like in suits going back and forth to work or whatever. And I just thought, how do they do that? And I was only doing that a year ago, but like, how did they do that? And just gave I you a whole realized new perspective. my mentality was, I just thought, oh, I don't know if I can ever do this again. And it scared me a little bit. Um, but the reality is, is if you find something and you're excited about it, you'd be right back. And that's you know pretty much what happened. Was there any point during that break where you knew you had to get your ass in gear sooner than later or funds were going to run out or you know you would be in a position where you're like crap, I haven't been doing anything. It's going to be hard for me to take a job somewhere, even start something because I haven't been throwing around ideas. Was there any panic in that regard or? Yeah. I mean, I would say 
It's funny because I didn't think about it at all. And then when I did think about it, the reality is if you're not panicked, then you will get trapped. You will be, you know, out of funds or you will not have a job. And so I was just enough panicked, like right around the year mark, I did a trip where I went to US championships out in Des Moines. And on that drive, I kind of had some ideas of what was next and I couldn't wait to get back and start. But I leading into that trip was kind of, I was looking at my funds going, okay, I could do this for a while longer, but then I'm going to not have anything. And I I still want to have reserves. I still want to have money in the bank to buy a house or whatever it is, you know? And, and I thought it's irresponsible to keep doing this. An extra year off won't change anything. So I wasn't in a tight spot that way. It was There's more, still a little bit of an impetus to get your ass in gear. It was more like, okay, you've taken your year, it's time. And it was right around then that, and it's serendipitous, it's very lucky, but it was right around then where I started to actually feel passionate about a business plan. And I had a, you know, a fair amount of ideas over the year, but this was the first one that when I thought of it, I was like, I can do this, it's zero, like very little startup costs and kind of just got excited about that. Would you say you were burned out by the end of your time at Brooks? Yeah, I mean, I was burned out. Um, I traveled, I traveled a decent bit, and you know, we we had a small team in sports marketing. We all worked so hard, and we came off 2016 was a crazy year where, you know, we have the Olympic trials. We did a bunch for the Olympic trials, and then we sponsored Mount Sac, and then we did the PR Invitational, and then we did the track trials. And meanwhile, like we're doing this whole rule 40 behind the scenes thing. And there's, then there's also just the internal work of meetings and budgets and whatever. And I remember 2016 being the first time I was like, wow, I need a break. And I took a sabbatical. You get a sabbatical after 13 years of Brooks, 13.1 years. And, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Right. And, uh, I took a sabbatical and I actually came down here for a month and it was the first time that I turned email off my phone. I didn't do anything for a month. And it was the first eye opening glance at, oh, there's life outside of Brooks, which was not like surprising to me. Cause I, I just thought this is it. Well, Brooks you were in it. it for so long at that yeah, point. Yeah. And it too. was my identity. It was you know, it was everything. And so it was the first time I got a glimpse of that. So it was, I was a little burned out just with work, but I also was a little more, um, it was eye opening to, to realize, oh, this, first of all, this machine works without me, which you always think you're so important, but this machine works without you. And you also, there's a whole world out here outside of this little you know, bubble that you can explore. And so it's pretty eye opening. I don't think that's what a sabbatical is for, but that's what it was for me. You know, it was very like, it was kind of the first time where I was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to stay there. Um, nothing to do with Brooks. It was just, there's this whole world out here and I feel like I want to do something different. What changed for you after the sabbatical from an outlook perspective when you went back to your job? You know, I was tethered to my phone. Um, I was the type of person that I was walking to lunch, looking at my phone, answering emails. I was walking in the hall. I was in meetings, checking my phone. I was at home watching TV, 
answering emails. I was at dinner answering emails. I was you couldn't shut off. I couldn't shut off, and that's just how I'm built. And then I'm on on the weekend. I'm running with athletes. I'm running with you know our coach. I'm running. I mean, I just there was never there was no break. My life and work were the same thing, and it was the first time the sabbatical where that wasn't the case. And I think that was just that was the start of okay, when I got back to Seattle, I didn't put email back on my phone. I was like, you know what? I'm here all day and I'm around these people and these athletes all the time. So I don't really need to have email on my phone. You know, it's just a couple hours a day where I'm not accessible. Now when I travel, I'll put it back on. But it's like little things like that. It really made a big difference, but it also, it just started me down a path of, I was finally kind of, just pulled enough out of it that I could leave because I was so deep into that culture that I, even though I kind of thought I might want to leave one day, I probably wouldn't have if I didn't take a sabbatical first. I think that's the big takeaway for anyone listening to this. Not that they have to take or can take a sabbatical from their job, but we can get away from the inertia of our day-to-day, step outside of our little box and let ourselves breathe so that we can have new perspective when we get back in it. Otherwise, you're not going to notice your behavior. It's just automatic. It becomes a reflex. It's completely unconscious. And then it just gets harder and harder and harder to get out of the longer that you're in it. Right. Looking at your year off from Brooks or after you left Brooks, did you know that at some point you would get back into running or were you open to looking at other industries and just having running be something that you did because you enjoyed it? Or did you know it was going to be something in the running industry that you would move on to next? You know, I, I always figured it would be in the running world. Um, I just, when I looked deep into like my skill set, I just realized like running is... It's what I know the best. Now, I guess you could parlay that and say, well, we put on a bunch of events and we were really good like event planners. So at one point I thought I could be like an event planner because that's what you do. You know, you're putting on track meets, you're you're doing a trials takeover mm-hmm. in a town and you're renting spaces for this after party or this whatever. And you realize right away, you're like, oh, I kind of have a skill set for like an event planner. So part of me thought, am I into that? you know, could I do that? Um, but running just, it was always there. It, I, you just realize that's what I know better, you know, and that's, that's my skill set. And, and I always thought I would stay in the running one way or another, just, but I didn't want to work for another company. I didn't want to just trade that job for another job. How much of it was the people in the industry or what you described earlier from high school into college and then even during your time at Brooks, a lot of the most important people in your life you met through running. Was there any fear of getting away from that? There was. I mean, that was by far. I mean, the job was great. It was my dream job, but that wasn't hard to leave. The hardest part was leaving the people in that building who I saw every single day. And and to get fully out of running was was even scarier because then I really wouldn't get a chance to work with them. Because I always thought, well, if I figure out something, I can still work with those people, but like on my own, you know? And I wanted to keep that. But yeah, I was, 
I always wanted to stay in running because I did not want to lose that. Um, that the relationships was the biggest part and the friendships and yeah, I mean, it wasn't as so much the job, even though it was an amazing job. It was, I didn't want to lose that. You described a little while ago, the drive to Des Moines when you went to us nationals. Was that where the idea for sound running first popped up in your head? Yeah. Um, it really was, uh, the idea at first was something super basic. Um, coach and um make training plans and you know whatever and but the further i mean this is lots of long drive there and back it was a very long drive and so the further you go into it i'm a competitive person and i look and like well there's a million people coaching don't go on instagram for 10 seconds and every person's a coach and i was like huh. i mean i'm not special i'm i'm have this industry kind of experience but I don't have like this online personality. I'm not, I don't have all these followers. So how am I going to be different? And I just thought I can't be, I'm not going to be this like person that's going to get a bunch of coaching clients and whatever. And even that I didn't think was scalable. I didn't think, well, I can't coach a hundred people and make, you know, like I just can't. So it kind of just slowly morphed where it's okay, I want to be a coach. Okay. Now maybe I'll write training plans. And it's like, no, I want to partner with events and build custom training plans for events and then sell them to the masses, you know? And so it was, it kind of morphed where I was like, okay, that's something more scalable. And that's something where I feel like, okay, that's in a competitive advantage is different, mm -hmm. not just coaching people. There's not many um, others doing it. Yeah. There's a lot of people that coach and everybody has their skill set. Everybody's, um, you know, um, has their own way of doing things and they have their own following. And I, Maybe I should have believed in myself more, but I didn't believe in myself enough to build that following. I believed in my ability to use the connections I had in the running community and to do something different. And I thought that was different. And then, um, and then it's just kind of, I, I listened to a million of those, how they built this. Um, it's one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, it's an amazing podcast. And every single one of those, a lot of those businesses, they pivoted you know, where they had this idea and then a couple months in they pivoted to this and then they pivoted to this and all of a sudden it's this crazy thing that you know now, but started out something different. And so I've always been really open-minded with this as, hey, right now this is what we're doing. But, and so this last year it pivoted into, we had a chance to put on a track meet, put on a track meet and realize, oh wait, this is like kind of what I'm, decent i'm good at this you know i can put on this event and you know so it's pivoted a couple times did you get that same feeling that you did at brooks when you would put on the pr invitational or you were doing something different as you described earlier yeah it felt just like that and the way i knew it was the right thing was it came together in like four weeks just four weeks came together i put, remember put the meat on and as soon as it was over i was like okay next year i'm gonna do this 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 and this and i got real excited about it and that's when i knew i was like okay this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do it well i'm not gonna and also anybody that's in this industry especially somebody that was in my former position you sit around all the time and you complain about what's wrong with track and field i'm one of the biggest you know uh talkers when it comes to that i always complain about what's wrong and i feel like i have a a chance to potentially work towards one piece of the solution, which is an event series in the U S 
you know, after USA's that not only athletes can make money, but we're doing things differently and it's, you know, it's more entertainment. I'm really, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to do our best, but I, I, yeah, it's exciting. It's very exciting. You just described how the sunset meet this year all came together in four weeks. What was the purpose of that meet and how will it evolve next year as a series? Yeah. So this year was a special year, right? So worlds is happening right now, now. right now it's late September. It's going to go through, you know, almost October. Right. And it's a, it's a unique year because there were all these, everybody needed qualifiers because they have these new qualifiers and you can't chase. So we had this giant gap after USA's and there were no meets and it was almost a little, you know, sometimes you, you think, well, it's almost too easy. Like if I put on a meet right now, who wouldn't come? And I just kept thinking that it's like, if I find the right track, who wouldn't come, you know? And so everybody needed times. I mean, nobody had their times at the, at this point. And so that's kind of the genesis of, we had talked about, um, John Marcus and I, who does uh, the Portland track festival, we had talked about this series for a while and it kind of just fell through because people got busy and whatever. But then last second, your coaches were still like, you know, we need something else, agents, whatever. And so like, okay, I, I found Azusa Pacific said they can host a meet and a really great coaching staff there. And we threw it together in a month and all of a sudden we had this great meet and, um, yeah, it, it came together so quickly and it was, it was born of a need. They needed a meet, you know, this isn't just, oh, it's just another meet, you know, in May where people can run fast. This was like coaches, agents, and athletes needed something. And mm-hmm. I wish we could have gotten more people standards. And that was what the meet was for, was for people to get standards. We had pacers in every event. Everybody's trying to get PRs and standards. And it was successful. Um, from the outside looking in, you brought on Under Armour as a big sponsor. You had, I mean, the Morning Shakeout sponsored, mm-hmm. the Women's 5000. Uh, you had other sponsors sponsoring different events so that you could pay pacers, athletes, etc. How do you build upon it for next year and make it better and make it something that can sustain for years to come? Yeah, that's a big question. I, and I think I have the idea, you know, the idea was, so I called a couple coaches up, um, kind of immediately after the meet and I said, next year, what, like what, what's needed. And you look at the schedule and the trials is early. The Olympics, Olympics early. There's nothing in between. And I thought, well, Athletes need it. They're probably looking for one tune-up race, right? Even if they just go to run an off-distance somewhere, they're looking for... But everybody else that doesn't make the team, which is 99% of the athletes, they're going to go to Europe. And it's kind of a, it's kind of an old joke, but like they go to Europe, they fly all the way over there, and they just race each other, right? They're in these small... They're either Tiny in Ireland or they're in Belgium or whatever. And these are great events, but a lot of these guys just racing each other, you know? And I think if there was an option here, they would stay here. Now there's a couple people that are getting appearance fees, diamond league, whatever, and they're going to go do that, but that's that's very few people. And so the idea is we want to give people an opportunity to compete here. We want to give, if you're an Olympian, you can get a nice little tune up race in and you have three different options. We have three. So we're going to do three meets and it's the, basically the three weekends in between the trials and Tokyo. And if you're not one of the people doing a tune-up race before Tokyo, you're just looking for three meets to end your season. The goal is we're going to have two of the meets is going to be championship style racing. Cause 
not everything can be a time trial. You know, you good old racing is what people come to watch. Well, right? that's what they're preparing to do at right. trial. Well, they're going to do it at the trials and prepare to do it at the Olympics. And you know what? Good, like good old fashioned racing, like times, times will come in those races as well. And then we want to do one where, okay, you're in peak shape. Now let's go, let's go for it. We're going to get pacers. And we're, so we'll do one meet. As of right now, the idea is one meet is going to be, let's just go for times. We're going to just go for it. We're going to set up races to be fast. Let's just all catch a flyer. Right. And then the other two meets are champion style championship style races with our goal is to do really solid prize money because we want this to be competitive. I and mean, if you're not going to go to Europe, if you're going to stay here, well, you're not just staying here to run a couple of races, you're staying here to make money. You're a professional athlete. And so that was the thing we couldn't do this year in our first year. We couldn't offer prize money. And that was probably the one thing I really wish we could have done this year. Um, we put all the money into pacing and just pulling the meat off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next, this year, our goal is to really professionalize it. I mean, these guys, it's their job and we want to make sure that if they're coming here, they're coming here to make money, they're coming here to do their job and that they're treated well and that they have all the opportunities they would have anywhere else, you know? Will all the meets be in the same spot? So to be determined, um, we are... Under Armour is going to come on as a major sponsor again, and Under Armour um, has a relationship with UCLA. So at least one of the meets will be at UCLA, which is really cool. Yeah, because UCLA is not far from the ocean, so athletes could stay, you know, on the beach. Which normally, when you come to LA, you're staying an hour inland and running somewhere. Um, I there's still talks of one of the meets being down in San Diego. Um, Azusa Pacific is obviously a really fast location. And so that's one of the, um, Mount Sac is not far. Mount Sac, as we all remember, was supposed to be the 2020 Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. So that stadium's unbelievable. It's going to be, it's done in about two months. And so that's one of the venues we're looking at. Um, the only thing I know for sure is one of the venues will be UCLA. What else are you doing with Sound Running? Is it all about these meets now and the Sunset Tour? Are you still doing any of the training plans and partnering with events to help the masses get ready? I'd love to understand the other aspects of the business or how you're thinking about it. Yeah, so I I see it as everything feeds, you know, the other pieces. So um, the meets um, are a big portion of what we do. Um, but yeah, we still, it's a training you know, it's a training company. Our, our job or our goal is to provide better training plans for the masses. So, you know, I, this came from all my friends are training for these events and they're getting online and they're downloading these training plans and they're essentially, essentially Excel files. And I just thought, ah, that's, that's so boring. Like that's your experience is you're just looking at a number on a sheet on your fridge and that's what you're going to go do today. Instead, we're trying to build a much more you know, inclusive and, um, exciting training plan, you know, train them. Like, obviously you're not doing the same miles and the same workouts, but like, why not do more fun workouts like professionals would do? Why not talk about nutrition? Why not talk about drills and stretching and strengthening? And why not, you know, all the things maybe we take for granted that we kind of know for through 20 years of running, um, try to incorporate all that and build a better training plan. And so, we have training plans that anybody can purchase. We we want to build a library where no matter who you are and where you are, there's a plan for you. So if you're a high school kid and you're in cross country season and you don't have a you know, you don't have a coach or, you know, whatever, or you need a summer training plan or you need um 
a return to run training program because you hurt or you need a strength training program for a runner. You know, we want to be a library of all those, but all that comes also with, we're going to partner with events and create custom training plans. And so, um, we have a couple big road races that we're partnering with in 2019 and 20, um, where we're going to create custom training plans for their events. And so if you sign up for that marathon, you get a custom sound running training plan. It's built for the course. It's built based on what's going to be on course. So if goo and cliff bar are, you know, your, your sponsors, that's, we're going to build that into the training plan because why shouldn't you be practicing with that stuff? And so, yeah. Are you doing all this yourself or have you brought coaches on board to give you a hand? Um, right now it's just me. Uh, I always say we, cause I just feel like I'm, I've said we for so long. So I always say we, um, with the sunset series, there will be a, we, I'm going to have to hire a couple folks just to really help pull everything together, Manage especially different for aspects of the operation. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't have the, uh, content and graphic, uh, you know, um, capabilities that, you know, I would like to have to really build the content we need and for Instagram or for the website or for whatever. And so I have to do that. And also a couple of folks for organization side, I had a lot of help this year, which was really great volunteer help. And, uh, you know, probably try to take that and actually pay people this time around, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a me for the rest of it, write all the training plans, make the, you know, make the site work, you know, do the negotiations for the events and whatever it is. Um, in a perfect world, you know, in a year or so, we would have more people. Um, I would love to partner with people and do, I mean, we're really open-minded as far as like, I keep talking about pivoting, but if an opportunity came up tomorrow and somebody said, Hey, we want to do this, this, and this, and that required more bodies done, you know, um, I didn't even know until two months ago we were going to be doing this event series the way we are. And now it's like the f- focus. Yeah. You know, last question about sound running. What's behind the name? You know, I was going back and forth with a friend for a long time on the name and we had a million names and it kept coming down to, um, smarter training, you know, um, what's smarter or better or, um, and we just kept like throwing around words of like, you know, smarter training, better training, strong, you know, whatever. And it just, and I think we ended up honestly looking at like, did like a thesaurus of like, what is um, smart or intuitive or whatever. And sound was one of like sound. It was one of them. And I really liked that. And maybe it's my time in Seattle with, you know, the Puget Sound and there's South Sound Running is actually a store up there and whatever, but Sound Running just, it worked. I checked the URLs. That, which, <laughs> that's a, which, that's that, a major part of it. Yeah. Which you want to, you want to end a bunch of name ideas, just check URLs. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the, be, what's behind it. And now it kind of feels right, but yeah, I think anybody naming anything, it's, uh, it never feels right at the beginning. Yeah. You can take it a number of different ways, which is what I love about it. Right. Last bit, we've been going for over an hour here. I'd love to just get topical and talk about some different things that are happening in the sport and about some of the things that you experienced working in sports marketing for 13 years. One of them, which I'm interested in learning more about, is what would you look for in an athlete? 
that you were signing to your roster? It's this is actually something that changed over time. At first, um, it was, I mean, obviously talent, right? You're like, where this place, person place at this? Did they win nationals? Whatever. And I wouldn't say that that's something that's unique, right? Everybody's looking for somebody that's talented, but I was really working close with the flow track crew at that time. I was good friends with them. We partnered with them for a couple of things. And I remember I was like, Hey, who's really popular on your site? You know? And they're like, Oh, these, these four or five people, every time we interview them, it's crazy. And at the time we were recruiting, um, Katie Mackey and Angela Bizzari and Gabe Grunewald. And those three were very, very popular on their site. They gave great interviews. Like Gabe obviously already had a great story. Uh, Katie was just this bubbly interview, you know, like Enigma. She's just great in interviews. And Angela was just so good and kind of um, low key about being so good. And honestly, it was like, well, they're all really good runners. And they're the most popular on this website where people go to learn about runners. And that was part of it. It was like, but now it transitioned when the beast started. It trend, and I know Keith and Kevin do this as well. When you're building a team, it becomes is this person coachable. How do they fit in with the team? Okay, the I always say like the the skill set and the being good is is like kind of the given part. But can they be a good teammate? Are they going to disrupt the 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 system? Are will they actually listen to the coach? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost like a personality test. You almost felt like you were uh, analyzing these people in their personalities. Well, there's far many more layers to it. Yeah. And things to consider. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I would say it became more and more about their personality and how they fit with the team. Um, the further down the road we get first, the first time I recruited people was, are they fast and were they popular? You know, they're popular athletes. That's who you want, right? People are going to talk about them. If they're in the race, are, is their name mentioned? perfect that's what we want but that became kind of the given and then we went further and further with it with okay we have those two things but are they a good teammate are they coachable um do they represent what we want brooks to be and what we want brooks to be out there and that gets complicated because you you know you, you figure it out after a while you can kind of look for warning signs but you're gambling you're gambling and you have to, you know, you have to place your bet on, you know, the one with the highest odds. And sometimes you're wrong, but you do start to get an eye for it after all. You you will not always be spot on, but I feel like you learn kind of what works. And the people that have been doing this forever, you know, the Keith and Kevin Hansons and the people, I'm sure they can look at people right away and go, nope, they wouldn't fit here. Or, wow, I want this person, you know. In the last five or six years, an athlete's social media presence online presence in general has had a big effect on their marketability for a brand. When did you guys first start to pay attention to that shift and factor it in to negotiations when you're bringing on a new athlete? Yeah, that kind of became the uh, other part of it. Like I said, I used FlowTrack in the past, but then it became, okay, well, how many followers do they have? Do they have a good, like, what's their personality online? Are they antagonistic? Are they celebratory? Are they kind of dormant? You know, because there's still a lot of athletes out there that don't do anything on social media. I mean, there's still athletes where they were a great athlete and we're begging them to post. 
and begging them to do something. And it is a really big part. And I, I feel like some sports have figured it out better than others. Um, we did our best to include it in contracts, try to incentivize to give them content to do whatever. But yeah, it's a huge piece of it. And it's, it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would say there's an argument that, and this is a scary thing for professional athletes is that, okay, well, let's say this person's not near as good of a runner, but they have a huge social following. Who's better, the really good runner or the person with a huge social following? Like what's better for your brand? And that starts to get like, well, are we creating a team of professional athletes that are trying to get medals or are we creating a team of really marketable runners? People, yeah, people. yeah just people. And it's, 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 it's a weird that, kind of, that's you know, an interesting philosophical discussion and you could make arguments either way. And, and yeah. of course the athletes and the people who are involved in the sport are like, you're killing the sport. That's not important. These people haven't done anything. People on the other side are like, well, you know, they're more like us than they are the athletes. Why wouldn't you invest in us? And it's, I think that's a really interesting uh, yeah. place to be. And there's no way, I mean, part of my job and it's the part that people don't see, but part of the job when you're in that position in a company is you go to the executive team or the board or whoever it is, your head of marketing, and you say, we're doing this for this reason and I need this much money. And they're, if they're good at their job, they're going, well, why wouldn't we do this? What about these people? What about these influencers? You know, are they better than, and your gut is, these are athletes, we're getting athletes, we're building a team, but yeah, I mean, they have a point. And so if there's a takeaway, it's if athletes don't want that to happen, take notice what these people are doing mm -hmm. and just be better at it because you're already really at the top of your sport. But the more people that know who you are and know what you're doing and follow you, like it's only going to help you. And if you're not on social media, um, that's your, that's your choice. And there's good and bad reasons for that. But, uh, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's it's something I'm sure there's every company right now is sitting around thinking about that every time, like we put our money in this, we put our money in this because the, rea the reality is you want to sell shoes and what sells more shoes. It's tough. I want to say it's the <laughs> athletes and I hope it is I'm banking on it. But which athletes are doing it well, in your opinion right now? You know, um, it's been really cool to be outside of Brooks and to kind of, cause I was so centric like that. I, you almost get competitive sure. where you're, you're like, Oh, I don't like what this person's doing because they're just not. I imagine you get there. tunnel vision too, though, you because do. you've got to focus on what your athletes are doing. You do. Um, now that I, you know, you're putting on these meets and so I'm putting on these meets and you're kind of paying attention to everybody. And I would say, you know, Colin Quigley does an amazing job. I mean, for somebody who was injured probably 50% of the year, she was upbeat and including right now out, at the world championships putting out content and being upbeat and and being an inspiration of and just finding like the good in like being in the pool every day and so i i people like that i love because just thinking wow no runner likes to be hurt we all know that even for a week let alone half the year especially when you're at her level and to be positive and to have all this content and to be creative you know she does and relatable, like, re really relatable. And she does things even outside of running, which the, the braid, you know, and the braiding thing and the, all that. I mean, I just think stuff like that's so smart. I mean, I, I'm biased, but look at Nick, Nick Simmons, right? 
Nick's not competitively running anymore. Although I will argue if he decided to come back and I hope he hears this, if he decided to come back, Nick could be competitive right now. He's that good. He's that talented. He thinks he can't run around the oval anymore. He <laughs> thinks his knees and his, his ankles don't hold up, but Nick's that talented. But right now he's just doing fun stuff and he's trying to build a brand, but he's building it doing like racing people in Eugene. And, um, he just ran an 800 the other day, so, uh, and, which like the dude's doing nothing. He ran 159. I mean, he's doing, he's not training and he ran 150. You know, he's, he's doing some fun stuff and he lets his personality come out. And, uh, I think anybody that lets their personality come out, it's very hard to do. I, I, for one, like can't imagine doing a video filming myself and talking and whatever. I just can't imagine it. But people that do that and do it well and they're themselves and they have like an infectious personality, which I think Nick does. It spreads. It spreads and it's so good for the sport. I think he's getting other people interested, which he's always been really good at is taking running and expanding it. I mean, even when he was a pro, he took his moments. He knew exactly when to speak up and to do things. And I think Colleen's good at that. Um, I'm trying to think who else is doing really, really well. I mean, there's people that are really fun to follow, but... um. How about non-athletes? Any that do, jump out at you? I can't tell you how uh, entertained I am by Will Smith's Instagram. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's got a professional crew working with him, but he's just infectious. I mean, he does some really amazing things. He seems to have this amazing family that, and they all have these unreal relationships, especially like being in the world he's in. But he has a good me- all of his videos have some kind of message they're entertaining but he has these unbelievably overarching like messages to his videos too i'm real real entertained by his instagram yeah how about in running though non-professional athletes who are doing things well not just on instagram but kind of more holistically through different avenues, maybe having a local presence in their community. They definitely have a big presence on Instagram because that's the hot platform right now. Maybe they're doing some interesting stuff on their blog or in their newsletter, Um, podcast, whatever it may be. So one thing I've realized now that I'm out kind of on my own, all all I notice are other people that are doing the same thing. And I, so, um, is it the fast women newsletter that's out? Like, like Allison Wade's publication. That's really cool. Um, Liam's, uh, Lope magazine. Like I love seeing like all those people, anybody like the morning shakeout, like the amount of podcasts I listen to on the road when I've taken these road trips, like everybody that's doing these new things and running, which they're new. I mean, the pioneers, the let's run the flow tracks, the runner spaces, like, amazing and what they've done for the sport is unreal but now you're seeing all these other little upstarts and i'm really impressed by all of those all of those are and I'm, I'm looking i'm going okay they did that on their own they just started that out of thin air and now it seems like something you kind of have to have mm-hmm. you know and that's pretty cool i mean so i would say yeah morning shakeout low fast women like those are the things i find myself paying real close attention to because it's it's new and it's it's filling a void and it's also you know runners we just want we want more and more content we want more stories we want to hear more about what this person or that race or this you know whatever and we're getting that chance you know 
back to the athletes, how can the brands better utilize the professional athletes that they've signed to their rosters? I mean, better use. Sometimes I would say they need to use them. Well, that's why I asked the question because I don't think many brands are using them well at all. Oh man, it's um. To be fair, somebody who worked internally in my job was to sign these people and then to help marketing use them and to give these resources out. It is an internal battle because there there are all these things battling for I would call it stage time, you know. So whether it's Instagram or YouTube video or um, a photo shoot or whatever it is you have, okay, you have this new shoe coming out. That's really big. And you have this new apparel and then, oh, there's new green initiative within the company. And then, oh, they're going to hit this new goal. And so all these things are battling for stage time. And sometimes the athlete stuff just falls away unless it's like really timely, like Boston Marathon or the Olympics or whatever it is. And so we used to say like, because it contents everything, right? You you can't have enough content in anything. You know, that's the hardest thing, but you can't have enough. And I, I used to always joke, it's like, come out to practice, content for days, you know, and just workouts and the camaraderie and the laughs and the so sound there. bites and the whatever, but you're always fighting for stage time. Like, okay, they're going to put an Instagram post up of the new shoe that's coming out and whatever, or are they going to put post about this workout somebody did it's it's the new shoe because the new shoe is they need sales right and every company is a little different every company some companies lead with marketing some lead with sales some lead with product some and i think that's the battle and i would say the way companies can better use athletes is they need to create an avenue where those stories are consistently told so whether it's on your website and you're just linking everybody there and you're sending everybody there and whatever it is, or whether it's an Instagram just for your athletes or whether it's a YouTube channel just for your athletes and your, cause that's constant content and people do care what's going on with those people. And it's not just, Oh, Desi wins Boston. So it's a big moment or, uh, you know, this athlete breaks this record or this athlete does this. It's all, that's all reactionary stuff. And there's a lot of that. Right. And, and, and it's not a, Brooks' problem as much as it's probably an every brand problem outside of Nike. But you can even argue Nike, like how many Shalane stories have they told? And Shalane is one of the best female American distance runners in history. But how often have they told her story outside of New York, right? It's so not, it's not often. Yeah, it's not often at all. I mean, you know, Galen Rupp, say what you want about him, most decorated American distance runner of our time right now. You hear nothing from them. And right. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Right. But it's like, that's a problem. Um, even Elliot Kipchoge right now, he's going to be doing this breaking, well, it's not breaking two, it's the 159 challenge. Right. But when they did the breaking two thing a couple of years ago, that was one of the best activations that they did. And I think they could have done a longer buildup for it, but they were telling all of these stories in the lead up to it. And it was well-produced and you really got to know who these athletes were and what their background was. And I think it was that, that really had people enamored with Kipchoge as much as it was the actual like two hour, 25 second marathon that he did on this racetrack in Monza. No, it was, in my opinion, if you're in a sports marketing class or just a product marketing class, they should study what they did at Breaking 2. I mean, it was a, amazing. The, 
the buildup and how many people they got to come and the science that went into it and how they positioned like breaking this barrier and we put all the science we put all the science in these shoes and we got the world's best athletes and you have to have the world's best athletes first but they had them and it was a study in product marketing and sports marketing it was a pr stunt it was all those things wrapped up together it was brilliant and there were more people who watched that not so much in person because of the flexibility they need to have to do it at the ideal time. But online, I mean, it was millions and millions of people who watched this one guy circling around a track, not yeah. trying to beat anyone but the clock. Yeah. And um, didn't uh, IAAF cut the 10K because people don't care enough? It's <laughs> no. If you make something enticing enough and entertaining enough, people watch two hours of a dude running around a racetrack by himself, not even racing people, really. It was never really a race. And so yeah, the packaging of that and everything that went along, that's a perfect example of how everything came together, how you use an athlete to promote a product, to create a moment, to get people outside of even runners to pay attention. Um, there's very few moments like that. I mean, Nike is just brilliant at that. but And they have resources. They have resources and they can get they can get everybody behind it. I mean, they snap their finger and every news publication there is, is ready to, you know, report. And, um, they pulled it together and, but yeah, there's creative ways to use athletes. I mean, there's other things to do and there's other creative ways to use athletes and to promote stuff. And I, that's what I like. I, I'm like, let's, let's get creative with it. Or let's at least, if you're going to have all these athletes create a, a place for their stories to be told, because, I just, I, there's so many stories and I, and like we talked about the, the newsletters and the podcasts and everything that's out right now, people are gobbling that up because they want that. And if there's a brand willing to provide them more and more and, you know, you see like NAZ Elite, how good of a job they do it, making their training, um, super open and, uh, everybody's really on so like high on social media and doing everything like that's great. I mean, they're kind of doing their own thing, you know, like Hoka doesn't even have, they, they're their own open book. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And just, yeah, there's, there's a big, uh, you know, gap, I think, as far as how much people want versus how much they're getting from athlete content. We've been going for a while now, only a couple more things before we wrap up. Are you worried at all about the viability of professional running and athletics as a professional sport. I am, even though, you know, we're, we're in the wake of, uh, Wanda just signing on with IAAF as a big sponsor, which is a really big deal. Um, I do because I am worried because the people running the sport, it's kind of just run from a couple people serving their own interests. And they're not, I don't, in my personal opinion, they're not looking out for the sport as a whole. And I also think for the sport to really work, it kind of has to be blown up and rebuilt, which track and field is kind of like baseball. It's statistics, like old school kind of rules and all these regulations. And it's very like long and arduous and, and to make it really a viable product and to make it something that competes with other sports or even is in the conversation it's gonna have to be blown up and i don't know exactly what that means you know i've 
I've heard different ideas and there's some stuff I've really thought was cool and some I didn't like, but yeah, I, I think that's very scary because if you're talking about blowing up a sport, you're talking about the people running the sport seems to be very selfishly motivated um, and not necessarily looking for the long haul. They're just looking for right now. Um, that doesn't look good. <laughs> that's, that's not good for the sport. It doesn't benefit anyone except that person. Right. You know, and I mean, think about uh, the way I use example I use is I love track. I love going to meets. I get bored at the Olympic trials. It's a lot of track. It's so much track. Like what, 11, 12 days? Yeah. And I'm like, if I got bored here, then what are we (laughs) doing? Like, I love this thing. And I got like, there was times I was like, this meet is forever, you know, and that's not good. I wouldn't get bored at the NBA playoffs. That's for sure. But to your point earlier, that's the way it's always been done. And the powers that be are hesitant to change. Yeah. And maybe I would be too. Maybe if I was on the board of IAAF or USATF or something, maybe I'd be like, we'll let the next group fix it. You know what I mean? Um, maybe I would be, but we'll just get pissed at people who fly their plane over the track. Right. During the meet. Because what <laughs> yeah. what what else do we have better to do? Right. You know, you should be like excited that um there's all these brands trying to you know, because the more brands that are get, that are involved in track and field, the I agree. Better, you know, so but uh, it doesn't seem to operate that way. It seems to be more of a monopoly. Well, and that's what's interesting, with some exceptions, and the exceptions are the IAAF, the USOC, USATF. There are no non-endemic brands getting into the sport that are benefiting anyone but the key stakeholders at these organizations. You don't see many many athletes with sponsors outside of shoe companies and maybe a small nutrition company uh, or you know some other tiny product that's paying them. But it's like imagine if like an athlete could be on you know, an Apple sponsored racing team or a Google sponsored racing team. I mean, and that, that model is, is there, look at Japan. I mean, look at these corporate teams in Japan, the Suzuki team and, you know, Suzuki's not making shoes yet. They're wearing Nike shoes. They're wearing ASIC shoes, whatever it is. And those brands are involved to their own degree over there. But it's like, you know, there's a lot of depth in those countries because people can make a living at it. Um, commercially people are, interested in it they they want to follow these teams they want to buy the products uh and i just think we're so far behind here but we're really just like the sport's paralyzing itself um, yeah it, it really is and it's, it's frustrating as all hell i mean frustrating you're just talking <laughs> about it but it's like it's and i mean you've certainly been frustrated by it on on numerous levels but it's just like it's like it, it really shouldn't be that hard to make this a viable thing and make it something that people can get excited about and want to go watch and be a part of. No, I, I agree. And there's a lot of things that are against, you know, that are, that are crushing it and making it hard. And I I would say the best example I can give is it's still a sport where people pay attention every four years, which is just bad. It's bad. It's a big gap. I try to tell people all the time, like the world champs happen right now. That's the Olympics. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, that's the same, same thing. You know, it's just not, and it's, it's not as marketable and people don't pay attention. It's not an NBC, whatever. And that hurts sport, but then, okay, so let's say it is the Olympics and let's say that is the moment. Well, 
the ILC controls that to a degree that athletes, even in their biggest moment, can't seek outside sponsorship. So let's say Apple's like, oh my God, we do want to get involved. Uh, we're, we want to sponsor Allison Felix for the Olympics. They can't because they're not an IOC sponsor. Exactly. And so Allison Felix could have made a million dollars from Apple. But the sport doesn't allow her to. But she won't allow And guess what? IOC sold her likeness to NBC, to Coke, to McDonald's, to whoever. And she doesn't get any money. Allison Felix doesn't get any money. But you can bet Allison Felix, Bolt, those people were the reasons that NBC paid billions of dollars for the broadcast. And they're not seeing any of that money. They're the stars. Right. You know, they're not seeing any of that money. And it trickles all the way down to, you know, Emma Coburn not seeing any of that money. You know, Rupp's not seeing any of that money. Anybody, no, nobody's seeing that money. The wrestler, the whatever, you know, like they're not seeing any of that. And it's, that's the craziest thing. I mean, I, part of me thinks that we, we did some stuff with Rule 40 to try to build awareness around it because we kept thinking, do people know this is happening? Because I feel like if people actually knew that this was the IOC was doing to athletes, they would be outraged, especially in this social media era of like people getting pissed off about something. And And look what just happened with Nike and pregnancy clauses and contracts. Right, right. That changed real fast. It changed real fast because as soon as people got on that, it became this viral movement. And I keep thinking... If if people knew that these Olympic athletes were not making, they're making pennies, you know, they're living below the poverty line while the IOC stuffs their pockets, um, they'd be outraged. But they brilliantly have done a good job of keeping that under wraps, and it's it's one of the biggest problems with our. I mean, there's a million problems with our sport, but that's very scary as far as people wanting to put money in. I mean, I can even say from the Brooks point of view, I was worried because I thought, well, this is like the biggest moment and our athletes can't, we can't talk about them. We can't congratulate them. They can't congratulate us. And I was always worried. I'm like, well, one day somebody's going to look at this and go, why are we supporting these athletes if we can't talk about them? I was scared to death that was going to happen. Well, and it's so hard to change the paradigm that it's easier to say like, you know what? Well, we're not going to support them. We'll support these people who we can talk freely about and use however we want. Right. And they, you know, and it's, it's scary because if companies right now, I always say like athlete sponsorship, it's, it's charity and it's them putting their stake in the ground that we're going to help the sport because Right now, it's not super profitable. I mean, there are people that, like, it does help. And I do think it, it sells shoes. I really do believe that. But for the most part, it still is like a leap of faith that we're doing better for the sport and we're doing whatever. But it could be 10 times better if some of these bureaucracies broke down and created an actual, you know, opportunity for these athletes to promote their brands and promote, you know, other brands to bring more money. And I mean, you know, there's a monopoly on this. I mean, you know, I think, uh, what was it? Nick even had like a lawsuit at one time going about this, that only Mm -hmm. shoe, shoe companies could get involved. Right. It's crazy. All right, dude, let's end this one on a positive note. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What is exciting you about running right now? 
Uh, you know, I'm at a, I'm at an age, I'm 41 now. So I'm at an age where, uh, I kind of have like a reset and now it's like, I kind of, I'm never going to, for the most part, I'm not going to PR and probably anything. So I get really excited about re PRing, you know, kind of new, uh, new PRs and new goals and getting as healthy as I can. And, um, but I also get excited about, um, the fact that there's, this series we're pulling together and that's exciting every single day to think about what we can do because the sky's the limit. I mean, I, I've been talking to some sponsors and we just say, hey, what do you guys want to do? Yeah, let's do that. Let's have fun, you know? And so I'm excited about my own running. I'm excited about these meets. I'm excited about, you know, just this new start. Love it. It's a great place to wrap this one up. Thanks yeah. so much for the time. Thanks for coming on the morning shakeout podcast. Thanks a lot, Mara. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. What'd you think? If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Before we wrap up, I'd like to once again thank UCAN for sponsoring this episode. UCAN powders and bars with super starch give you slow-release carbs and long-lasting energy without the big crash. I've used super starch drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, and their new hydrate product, which I've been taking on my longer training runs, is a clean, natural electrolyte replacement with no sugar, zero calories, and five added electrolytes to replace the nutrients that you lose when you sweat. Visit GenerationUCAN.com and use the code SHAKEOUT25. That'll save you 25% on your first order. Or you can use the code SHAKEOUT. There's no number at the end of that one. And you will save 15% on subsequent orders. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys, they help keep the ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.